are in week five. There we are. There you are. We're in week five of our series through the book of Philippians. Very powerful set of scriptures uh, this morning. There are four ideas that Paul is going to be presenting to us and the church. And it's really moving from that idea he gave us last week, that you are now kingdom citizens, citizens of the kingdom of God. And now Paul is going to get a really super practical and what that looks like for the church. And I would suggest that there are probably four ideas being presented on how the church should live and what the church looks like when she is fully flourishing for the gospel under the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to go from 1 to verse 11. 1 to verse 11. If you are there, give me an amen. Amen. Amens. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and here is the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the, his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why don't you join me one more time and let's just pray this morning. God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Your word brings life. Your word brings uh, just out the sword and sharpens us to make us and mold us more into your likeness, God. I pray, Lord, for those who've been looking for a word, they just heard it, and we thank you for that. And we pray, God, that when we leave here, we won't say, oh, that crazy guy up there preaching was too long. We'll say, look how magnificent and glorious our King Jesus is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, there are some things that we'll get into and some things that we'll save for the uh, midweek podcast, a little selfish plug right there. Speaking of selfish, here's the first idea that Paul is presenting to the church. Again, remember, Paul just told them this kind of, this cultural bomb and just laid it on there that they're not citizens of the kingdom of Nero at the time, but they're citizens of the kingdom of King Jesus. And this would have sent shockwaves to these people because we all know Philippians is a colony of Rome. And likely there were many veterans who were living in the colony of Rome in Philippians, right? And so these vets, when they hear they're no longer citizens of King uh, Nero, but they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, this would have probably 
jostled them a little bit, raised a few brows. And so now Paul's getting to them and telling them, like, listen, I know I just shocked you all with this idea that you're a kingdom citizen. So now I want you to, to understand what that looks like practically. In this first idea, he tells them that you are to live in a way that is in selfless unity. Paul opens up this extremely long run-on sentence. I don't know if you are into grammar or anything, but you notice how long this sentence is. And he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and I immediately think to myself, really, Paul, every book you write, everything that you've done with your life helps everyone understand that every encouragement is in Christ. And he Paul's says that his joy can become overflowed by the church doing this selfless unity. So remember back in chapter one, Paul says, um, he equates his joy with how the church, or, or rather, rather how the gospel is doing. And they're, remember, they're writing this letter and they're asking him, how you doing? How's everything? We heard you're in prison. Do you need anything? We're going to send somebody to give you some help. And Paul's response simply is that, you know what? The gospel's doing great. We're, it's fine. Paul never kind of equates his happiness or his joy with his circumstances. And Paul feathers this idea with, now, I, now that my joy is complete, now here's how it can be overflowed. Here's how my joy will overflow. And it's directly related to how the church is behaving. It's directly related with this idea of how you're living your life as a kingdom citizen. And the first idea is simply, you are to live in this selfless unity. And he says in verse three, something very interesting, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. And the Greek word for do nothing is do nothing. That was pretty profound, I thought. Just do nothing with self, selfish ambition. If you're like me, you're thinking, uh-oh. Because you immediately perceive how impossible this command seems to be. Because pride and selfishness, aren't they the underlying root of all sin? So it seems like this is... Something very heavy that Paul lays out on us, the phrase selfish ambition in verse three means more than just selfishness. In fact, the Greek here gives us the idea that it's this campaigning. Think of a, a politician. A politician, they do everything for the applause and for your vote. They're campaigning to recognize themselves more so that they can win over the people. That's this idea that Paul is presenting to the Philippians here. Stop self-campaigning. Stop campaigning for your own ambitions. Stop campaigning for your way and your life. Think about this in terms of our culture today. It doesn't seem like much has changed, really. It's been 2,000 years. You would think that there would be a culture shift, but it seems like there isn't. Think about this, when someone 
pulls out in front of you, or if you, you like, what do you do? You curse them, right? Or, uh, or if you pull out in front of them, like you've given your, like you have this self inner uh, defense attorney and he's told you it's okay. And the other person is the one who's in the wrong, right? That's that selfish ambition. Think about, this is why some people never ask for help or they think that they're entitled to everybody's help. That's that selfish ambition you're campaigning for yourself. This is why someone who, when someone who loves you deeply enough to call you out on a sin, what do you generally do? You quote the scripture, the do judge not lest you take this verse out of context. And then what you do? Oh, you don't know me. You've got a giant plank in your eye, bro. Right? And that what we do? Instead of saying, you know what? You're probably right. I, I, I need to do some soul searching and repenting. This is for the Philippians deeply seated into their culture. This is the Hellenistic idea of their uh, time to where it's very individualistic. In fact, there were gods that were uh, made in their image slightly larger, but it gives them the same idea that one day, and it was just kind of like, like this underlying um, message that one day you too can become a god. Hmm, does sound familiar to our culture that it's all about you. It is odd how things uh, change, but in fact, nothing really changes. We're talking 2,000 years ago, but it sounds like I'm describing the American culture today. Large emphasis on individuals. Sounds like it's crept up in our church. You, you know why I know this is true? Because I find, I have found in my pastorate in the however many years I've been serving in church that Christians can be, and I'm not talking about any of you because you guys are solid, all right? But I have found other Christians can, of, can often be some of the most offensive people. When in fact, we are called to be the least offensive people or offended people on the planet. That's that individualistic idea. That's that idea that Paul is warning them about in Philippians. For Caesar, the pathway to divinity was up, right? Climb the ladder, crush your competition, point all the spotlights on yourself. Some, for some reason, I feel like I just described myself, but anyway. And Paul is saying, even though you'll probably never rule your empire, don't go through life becoming your own little Caesars. I don't know why I just thought of pizza right there. Don't live like your own little God, the center of your universe. It's that cultural um, voice that says, listen to your heart. Have life become all about you. Speak your own truth. Don't let anyone get in the way. And if they do, they're just toxic haters. It's the culture of 2000 years ago, but it sounds like we're describing the culture of 2021. Don't get me wrong, though. I think um, Jesus absolutely gives people 
the right to have a healthy and right relationship with yourself, right? He mandates that we should Sabbath and we are in the image bearers of God, so we should take care of ourselves. But I think that culture just kind of pushed it into the silly world where it's just all about us. But selfless unity is this powerful tool that Paul is introducing or reintroducing to the church and telling them, this is how you are to live now with selfless unity. Here's what also happens. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he's about to introduce uh, the concept of Jesus in here, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. Now, this is beautiful because Paul is introducing another idea. If you want to live as a kingdom citizen, then you ought to serve others. Some would suggest that verse 6 starts as a hymn or a poem that would have been recited in the early church. And they would have read or, or sang this portion out loud inside of their house churches. Don't look into your interest, but also the interest of others. And how you'll do this is by having this mind of Christ. And so you, now you have introduced in this, it's this really famous verse that has caused quite the confusion and actually caused a lot of heresy that Jesus emptied himself. I do not think, and I will believe that the church Orthodox would agree with me as if they were asking my opinion, these great theologians, but this isn't that Jesus is emptying himself of deity as though some would teach or suggest. There's this idea called kenosis, and that is that heresy that teaches that Jesus was just fully man while he was on earth and completely emptied his divinity. I think Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 would agree with me. Um, not that they were asking my opinion either, but it says this, for in him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It doesn't say the partial deity was in Christ. No, the fullness, as if I would just like to say that the fullness there is fully there. That's what Paul means. This is what the church, how they would have viewed Jesus, that Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, fully God and fully man. This isn't Jesus then coming to earth and he's just got to figure everything out and at some point he'll be exalted back into deity. That is not what Paul is suggesting I think there are clues in, in the Gospel of John that would, that would help further this point. Uh, in, in John 17, 5, Jesus says that, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So on the one hand, the incarnate Christ in the Gospel of John has a divine nature. He's fully God. On the other hand, there were aspects of his glory, which he laid aside. This privilege of deity. I think of John 1.14. 
that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You, you think about the concept of the glory of God. You remember when O Moses was asking God, hey, can I see your glory? Can I see your face? And this is Matthew's translation. God says like, bro, you'll explode. There's something that Jesus had to kind of lay aside. You want the floor, full glory of Jesus to come incarnate? He'll incinerate everyone he sees. It's like Superman with his eyes radiating with these lasers. So there are some aspects. And I think what Paul is, is saying is this idea of sacrifice. Jesus emptied himself by leaving the throne of heaven and coming to the degradation of humanity to die for us. That's Jesus emptying himself. Jesus emptied himself by washing some nasty feet of disciples who often doubted him, who often fought and argued who was going to be the first in the kingdom of God. And he's there like on his knees washing their feet. This is Jesus emptying himself by coming as a baby in a stable. He did not empty himself of power. No, because I don't know anyone else who can tell a storm to stop being a storm. Do you? If so, let's talk. I don't know of anyone else who can tell a man who's been dead for four days to stop being dead and come back to life. Do you? I don't know a man or somebody who can speak 20 miles away about a kid that's dead and says, don't be dead anymore. That's some type of power and authority. I don't know of a man who can look at somebody like he did Philip in John chapter one and says, Philip, I knew you before you were even under this fig tree. That's some kind of knowledge that I don't think I can ever walk in. So Jesus is fully God, fully man. The one historic theologian said this, for we know that in Christ, the two natures were united into one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties. This guy sounds really smart. And more especially, the divine nature was a state of rest and did not at all exert itself whenever it was necessary that the human nature should act separately according to what was peculiar to itself in discharging the office of mediator. There would be no impropriety, therefore, in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was arrogant of something in respect of his perception as a man. For otherwise he could not have been liable to grief and anxiety and could not have been like us." I don't know what all that means, but it sounds really smart. But here's what I think he's saying here. While God being fully God, fully man came to serve and meet the most dire need of his people by emptying himself, which was our atonement. And he came and he died for us. Paul sees a church that can look past our self-interest and look to the interest of others around us, that kind of service. The kind of service that Jesus did, dig his hands in the dirt. This is what Paul envisions for the church who lives like kingdom citizens. He says, when, this, is, this is how I view this. Is like, I need to see some people who've got some dirt on their fingernails. who have got some 
sweat dripping down their brows, who's tired but joyfully tired because they're laboring for the kingdom of God, a church that's serving others like Jesus did, a church that's emptying themselves for others. The other idea and the concept here that Paul gives is found in verse 8. And it says this, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, here it is, the point of death, even death on a cross. So that we as Christians are to live, here it is, sacrificially. Now, I'm glad Paul put the word cross in here. As if he knew I was going to preach this sermon 2,000 years later. He's like, hey, I'm going to help this boy out with the sermon and put the word cross in here. Because the idea of cross was, was really this kind of, we don't really say this word. And, and Paul puts this in here um, about a cross. There's a phone that continues to go off and it's driving me crazy. Heather McGinnis. I can't turn that off. I don't have fingernails. Thank you. I have to find where I was. Okay, so there was this idea of cross. Cross was bad, right? Even Rome, Roman people, like they didn't even deserve the cross. Like you had to do something really bad if you were a Roman citizen to endure the persecution of cross. Like probably like some huge insurrection. Even for the Jews, the cross was viewed as something very bad. They remember, and they read from the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 21 around verse 22, that cursed is anyone who hangs upon a cross. And so this word and this idea of hanging on the cross was something very bad. And here Paul presents this idea that our Messiah, our Christ the King, he lowered himself to a position of servanthood by taking on our sins and by taking on the the atrocity of the cross. And he sacrificed for us, the ultimate sacrifice. So Paul here's like, listen, this is what the church should look like. Someone who is sacrificing. Someone who can stop viewing themselves too highly, right? And start sacrificing for others. Verse 10, this last thing here. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And here's this last idea that Paul gives them is that we are to live for the glory of King Jesus. We live for the glory of King Jesus. This is the great goal of all that we do. That we live, we breathe to do what? To bring glory to God. And this right here, when Jesus rose from the dead, Christ was exalted above all that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a lot of weight in that one statement right there. One of which is that Paul, it is said to believe that Paul kind of robbed that statement from the empire, because they had this idea that uh, every, knee will con- every knee will bow, every tongue confess that the emperor is God. And they found their salvation with the Roman empire. 
And so imagine like reading this letter, like you're, you're in this church, you're probably in Lydia's house, maybe in her courtyard. And you remember you got the former demon possessed girl, you got the Roman guard, his family that's been saved. Imagine when they read that part and they're like, ooh, really? Jesus brings salvation. Like we read this and we're like, oh, that's, that's okay. Yeah, I get it. But for them, there was this heavy weight to this saying that no, 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 no. Like either you will bow to Jesus as your king or you will bow to Jesus as your judge. And that was heavy. That's how the church would view this right here. Is that Jesus will be our king now and forever or when we do, when we do eventually bow to him, he may be our judge. Can't you imagine? Especially if they're doing this as a song. Imagine when they get to this part of the song, they're probably like, and every nation of every Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, what if they're outside? What if the windows are open? What if there's like a guard outside the window trying to listen into what's going on up in Lydia's household? This one simple treasonous statement could have brought death to everyone in that house. But they understood that all the glory was to Christ the King. Whose glory are you living for? Are you living for your own glory? Are you living for Christ the King's glory? So there's a few ideas and a few thoughts that I had, and I'll be done after I give you these few thoughts. We get this passage, we get that it's directed to the church, right? Paul's writing to uh, the Philippians, and they've asked him how he's doing, and he responds, and he's like, hey, you, I'm doing fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really just kind of go into like how I'm really doing. And so he, he goes in like, you're going to live as kingdom citizens, and here's how you're going to do it. And I think some of us, like we get this idea and he tells us you live selflessly, serve others, live sacrificially. But maybe like there's somebody in your mind right now that maybe the spirit of God is convicting you and bringing to your attention that maybe there's somebody that you can better serve. Maybe there's someone that you can better serve sacrificially. Maybe there's a group of people that you can serve. And I'll, and I'll go ahead and throw this plug in there. There's a group that you can serve this Friday in Colorado City with us. And I think Robin's going to be telling you more about that. You want to serve sacrificially. You could help us restore a school. Who is that person that maybe the Spirit of God dropped in your heart? Do you need to serve better? Another thought is, is, is this idea that Jesus, Paul, man, he's like a broken record. You, you got to understand Paul loves him some Jesus. Like Jesus knocked him off his horse, literally. And Paul's captivated by him, devotes the rest of his life to Jesus. And he's constantly pointing people back, not to themselves, but to Jesus and what he's done. In Philippians, like you get a lot of themes. You get joy, you get the kingdom citizenship. But this theme that Paul wants to point us to is Jesus. And Paul's like, man, look to Jesus. Look how he lived his life. 
serve Jesus. Like Jesus got off of his throne to come and serve us. Maybe we ought to get off our high thrones and serve others. You want to know who the best spouses are? Other than myself, but... The ones who legitimately make their goal to serve their spouses with no strings attached. And Brenda's like, oh no, you wrong, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've never counseled a couple and I've never had a problem where one spouse was like, you know what, they won't stop serving me with no strings attached. I don't think I've ever counseled that person You know why? The person's a myth. They're like a unicorn. In the same way as like with parents, with with as a boss, as an employee, as as whatever student, um, the best coaches, the all of these guys are they're just so full of the love of Jesus that they're free to give themselves away constantly and serve others. That's the heart of the Christianity that Jesus came. Came to die. We are called to die to that American dream and idea where life is all about you, but now we come and we serve and we empty ourselves. We die to the self-esteem. We die to that self-campaigning that we often do. Here's another thought that I had from this. What do you do? This was a question that I had when I was reading this. What do you do when you've lived your life like this, right? Like perhaps you have, like you are devoted, man. You are, you get the concept and you've been walking faithfully with the Lord and you have been devoted to him. You've spent your life praying and working and laboring and, and just pouring yourself out. And, and, and sometimes there's this temptation and this doubt that creeps in. And you, just, you, have this, you have this thought, this question, and it says, is this really worth it because you're not seeing any fruit? You ever been there? You ever just felt like, man, I've just been laboring. I get this preacher. Like I, I'm in, I've been in, I've been doing this my whole life. I've like dedicated my life to the gospel and to the advancement of the gospel. But sometimes I just have this self question and it just says, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it? The answer is obviously yes. But the question though, it's deep. It's like, is it worth it? But not is it just worth it, but is it working? I have not seen the fruit of labor, right? When will I see the fruit of the labor? Well, I've got good news for you. The good news is that King Jesus is reigning right now. And whether you see it or not, the gospel is being advanced. Whether you feel it or not, King Jesus is still ruling and his reign is never going away. So perhaps maybe you ought to just kind of stop doing the self-loathing and the self-campaigning that I'll do all of the time. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about Matthew. Where's the fruit of the labor? Is this really worth it? You know, we work so hard. Like what, was, what are we doing? 
And Christ reminds me in this passage of whose glory it really is for. Are you living for your own glory? Because that's what I had to ask myself is what, reading this, I'm like, well, actually I am. But are we really living for Christ's glory? That's the question. Tired, tired from working hard for the gospel, man, keep working because it is working. God's kingdom and rule is not some futuristic idea. That's bad eschatology. God's rule and reign is here right now. And we get to just enjoy and play in the game that he's called the church to be in. Let me pray over us this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged, for those who have been in the fight, in the battle, who've been walking in this. God, would you just send your spirit, encourage them, Lord? And I, I pray for those, um, man, who may just feel a little convicted about this whole humility thing and this living selflessly. Conviction isn't there to draw us away from you. It's there to draw us closer to you, God. So I just pray that you would do that by the power of your word. Those who struggle to live in this kingdom as a citizen, thank you, God, that it's not really up to us. It's you give us the grace you give us the preservation to keep going. It's through your spirit, Lord. And God, just for those who just um, maybe were lost and just kind of fumbling their way through life, feeling purposeless, I just pray, God, that this word would give them purpose, Lord, and their identity would be found not in what they do, but in who they are in you, Christ. Help us as a church, as the local body, Church, to live out, live in the selfless unity with each other, not living for ourselves, but living for others and for you, Christ. Help us in all of this, God. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, there's going to be some people over on the sides in the halls right here to pray with you. Uh, otherwise, man, I just want to invite you to, let's, let's just ask, maybe you need to ask God to help you uh, figure someone out to serve, figure someone out who you can better serve and just ask the spirit of God to help you drop a name in your, your heart right now. And so let's just go before him and worship in response to his word.